Well, good morning. We're going to be in First uh, Peter chapter two again this morning, uh, starting in verse eleven. And uh, as you're turning there, well, I don't know if you like to follow the news or not, but uh, a lot happening in the news this week. It's been interesting. Uh, you know, the Georgia recount started on Friday and is progressing through the weekend. Um, if you're paying attention, Joe Biden has been declared the winner of the election. And yet, President Trump has not conceded, citing voter fraud. Uh, probably a little bit more uh, quietly, maybe you've heard, maybe not, the Supreme Court is looking at a case in Philadelphia called uh, Fulton versus Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is telling the Catholic Social, social Services that they must place child, uh, children in foster care with same-sex couples. Uh, Catholic Social Services says that goes against what we believe. We don't want to do that. So that is in the Supreme Court right now. Um, has, has implications even on us and other uh, faith-based nonprofits. Big thing to be watching, be praying for. Um, if you're watching the news, you're watching the, the Midwest. just has a ton of coronavirus cases. Uh, state of Georgia is not so bad right now. Union County is kind of just level. We're not uh, really increasing or decreasing. So you watch the news and you think, well, what's this, what's this week going to hold? Like, what, what are we going to be talking about this week? What are they going to be telling us about? And I guess it leads me to ask the question, well, what is our response as Christians to these things? Uh, we interact particularly when we interact with uh, non-believers, in, whether at work, in the community, in our neighborhood, um, maybe when um, we're just in, interacting with, with anybody, believer, non-believer, really, but how should we be viewing these things? And this passage here in First Peter that we're going to look at, it's, it begins a new section in the book. We've been talking about a lot about our salvation and the implications of that in First Peter chapter 1 and through the first part of First Peter chapter 2. But here in verse 11, he kind of switches and he, he's going to talk about relationships for um, through the rest of the chapter, through chapter 3, and looking about how do we act amongst unbelievers? How do we relate to our government? How, do, how are husbands and wives to interact with each other? How are uh, masters and servants to interact? Or we would say employers, employees. So we're, we're getting into a section on relationships. And so this, this morning we're going to look at our interaction with unbelievers and what our posture towards authority should be. Um, and so, let's read these verses together, then we're going to pray, and we'll look at them. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living servants, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, these words from uh, your holy word. And Lord, as we, um, as we read them this morning, as I read them, I just see it being so applicable to uh, just the events that are going on and, and maybe more importantly, our response to the events going on. And so, Lord, as we study your word today, would it help us to represent you well in our community, in our workplaces, wherever it is that you take us this week? Uh, would we represent you well? And uh, would you just give us insight in how we can best do that? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love how he starts verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you. So what Peter is saying to these people is he, said, he is telling them, I love you guys. And I think he's also saying to them, probably more importantly, God loves you. And I think sometimes we just push past that, you know, and we just, we're just on to the, we're just, okay, what are we being urged to do? But I just want to stop for a second and tell each and every one of you this morning, God loves you. Each one of us is loved by God. And, I, and the reason I just pause on that is because I think we need to be reminded of that. We don't always, we don't always remember that. We forget that. Somebody said to um, Zig Ziglar, the, the motivational speaker, they said to him, Zig, motivation doesn't last. And his response was, neither does bathing. That's why you got to do it every day. We need, that's why we need God's word every day, because we forget and we need to be encouraged. So and that's an encouragement to you this morning. As a child of God, you're loved. We need to remember that. So as loved children of God, he's got this strong message for us. He says, I urge you. Your translations might say, I beseech you, um, I beg you, I implore you. Please listen to this. He wants us to know this. Pay attention, he's saying. And he gives us a warning. And this, this type of warning is found um, throughout Scripture. But he says, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's saying, don't partake in them. And it's really similar to what he said in chapter 1. We looked at a few weeks ago. He said, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We talked about how we have to put those things away. And he's repeating that same idea here. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Like, don't participate in them. Don't do them. And he's not just saying, it'd probably be best. You know, like, just like you say to your kids, right? I mean, you can do whatever you want. It'd probably be best, though, if you obeyed me. Right? No, Peter's saying, look, this is important. I'm urging you, don't give in to the passions of your flesh. Abstain from them. Don't do them. And so, you know, maybe the first question is, well, what are the passions of the flesh? And Galatians chapter 5 talks about it. Um, They're going to go there, but I'm just going to say, he says to abstain from them, and he gives us a reason why. He says, they wage war against your soul. Sin is not just some sort of neutral thing that you can choose to partake in or choose to not partake in. One would be bad and one would be good. There is a war. The, the sin and, and the Spirit of God are opposed to each other. And Galatians talks about this. It says, the desires of the flesh, Peter calls them the passions of the flesh. Paul here calls them the desires of the flesh, are against the Spirit, And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. What what the spirit of God would have us to do 
is contrary to what we would naturally choose to do. There is an, there's an opposition. And um, the, this is saying the spirit of the flesh is to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under law. And we talk about um, yielding to the Holy Spirit in our lives. When, when God is guiding us and leading us, that we should be obedient to that. But it's describing a spiritual battle between the Spirit of God and our human nature, or our sin nature, or as it's said here, um, the flesh. And it's not just two, two different things coexisting. They are opposed to each other. They're, they are contrary to each other. Um, before we continue in Galatians, there's a, there's a picture here in, in Genesis of what sin is like, how sin is against us. And we're going to look at it. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. This is the story of Cain and Abel. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. And Cain was a worker of the ground. He was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit off the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So, you know, seemingly two brothers, they're both earning a living, and they're both uh, bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. And, you know, up until this point, we don't have any instruction, we don't, we don't have an understanding of what God has told them to do or told them not to do, but we see here that they must have had some sort of instruction for the Lord, from the Lord on how they were to do this, because it says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So there must have been something. And, you know, I believe God is a good God. He's not just punitive. I think Cain and Abel probably knew what they were supposed to do and not supposed to do. And whether it was the the type of offering that, they, that Cain gave that wasn't acceptable, or maybe it was his heart attitude in what he was doing was, was not acceptable. But it says, Cain was very angry and his face fell. And of course, the Lord went to him. He said, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Right? And when I read that, I think, well, he, he must have known what he was supposed to do and, and in some way, he didn't do it. And if you do not do well, look at this word picture, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, we've got a cat. And uh, Sarah, Sarah gave this cat instructions when we got it. She said to the cat, this, was, this really happened. She said, if you do not kill mice and snakes... You will not be welcome in this home. <laughs> this really happened. All right, so no snakes yet. Plenty of, she got one snake. Plenty of mice. The occasional mole. And sometimes she brings in a bird. Now, when, when she's out there in the yard and she's got her eye on the bird, she crouches. You know, she thinks she's hiding there in the grass sometimes, you know, and everybody's watching her. Uh, maybe it's behind a rock or a tree branch or something like that. But when the, cow, when the cat crouches and is watching the bird, what is the, the cat's going through the cat's mind? 
if that bird turns its head, right? If the bird doesn't pay attention, if the bird comes a little bit too close, he's going to pounce on it. And what does the cat have in mind for the bird? Fun? A little playtime? No, death and destruction, right? He wants to destroy the bird. This is the picture that God's giving us of sin. It's not something that, well, it's fine. it'll be fine for today. It's just one time. won't be that long. Uh, it's no big deal. I'm not usually, I was just a little tired. It's fine. That's not sin. Sin is crouching, waiting for us to be in a position where we're not expecting it, where we're not paying attention, and sin wants to pounce on us to destroy us. Of course, the Spirit of God is within us, calling us to love, joy, peace, patience, to obedience. And so they are contrary to each other. Uh, So sin is just not something that's neutral. And of course, we're reading here in Peter, he calls it the passions of the flesh. And sometimes when you're reading your Bible and you read this word flesh, it might just be talking about somebody's physical body. But a lot of times, it's talking about what some people would define as a sin nature or as human nature. But it is our natural tendency or this natural bent that we have towards sin, to do what is wrong, to to not do what is right, to put our wants and desires ahead of God's wants and desires for us. So this is this, this is what our flesh does. It 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 leans towards, it tends towards, it goes towards sin. So what are some of these passions of the flesh? Well, Galatians lists some of them, and there's several other lists in the New Testament that you could read. Um, But this here says, this is continuing in Galatians, where we're just saying the desires of the flesh are contrary to the desires of the Spirit. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. There's several other scriptures you think, oh, I'm fine on that list. There's more in there. You'll, you'll identify with something. The passions of the flesh, they exist. We all have them. And they, Peter says, are waging war against our souls. So the good news is Peter gives us, gives us some instruction. What should, what should we do about this? One of the, uh, I'm not sure who uh, wrote the, the hymn, um, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, where he says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. He, the, the, the writer of that hymn was just feeling that sense that I, there's something within us that tends towards sin. But Peter says that we should do this in verse 12. Keep your conduct, he says, abstain from it. This is what, you, what we need to do. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he says, keep your conduct honorable. Live good lives. Um, do, do what is right. Live an upright life. Live in such a way that somebody's not looking at you thinking, man, that's an evil person. Man, that's a selfish person. We should do what is right. So that... When they speak against you as evildoers. So it seems like the first century Christians had something in common, or we have something in common with them. We get spoken against as evildoers, as Christians sometimes. And some of the things that they were accused of, um, first, 
the early church was accused of cannibalism. Right? Because they partook in what they called the Lord's Supper, when Jesus said, this is my body. And so there was this idea that these Christians were getting together behind closed doors because there was, there was persecution and they were, maybe they were, they were doing something. They're talking about eating bodies. That's all we know, right? Of course, that was dispelled pretty quickly, but they were accused of that for a while. They were accused of gross immorality, including incest. You know, those Christians are all lovey-dovey. They're calling each other brother and sister, and they're, they're, they're just always, there's something weird going on there. Right? They were accused of incest. They were accused of being antisocial and unpatriotic. So much of the, that Roman life centered around um, uh, their, their civil celebrations and holidays and festivals all were surrounded with a pagan worship. So um, any, any sort of, like we're getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas and we celebrate Easter. Well, every celebration that they had centered around pagan gods. And so new Christians weren't participating in those things. And so even though the Christians were good, upright citizens, they were probably praying for the emperor if they were, if they were obeying the teachings of scripture, they were called uns, unsocial and unpatriotic. And we have our own things that we get accused of. We get accused of... Um, being judgmental and hateful, right? Because we, we tell people, well, when, if, if you sin, and, and you will, you will be judged for that sin. So you're, we're, we're judgmental and we're hateful. When the truth is, we want people to know that. Why? Because there's a God who is offering grace and forgiveness and who loves them, um, and that we want them to know about the uh, forgiveness available through Jesus, Christians get uh, accused of being homophobic and discriminating because Christians would say that homosexuality is a sin. It's what the Bible teaches. The Bible would teach that abortion is a sin. The Bible teaches that murder is a sin. Lying, stealing, cheating are sins. Um, and, and some of these are sensitive subjects, especially for people who, who are kind of right in the thick of it. But the bottom line is, those are sins. And we have to be able to lovingly, as Christ loved, tell people the truth. Right? I don't think I've ever been called a murderphobic. Because I, because I would say murder is a sin. But we are accused of other, of other things. We're accused of forcing our religion on others. To me, this one's a little bit interesting. Now, if you're here this morning, I did not coerce you to come here. I'm going to tell you the truth if you're here. But I'm not making you stay here. Um, and do we have any Buccaneer fans other than Pastor Daryl here this morning? We've got a couple. Pastor, Pastor Daryl comes in on Monday. He wants to talk about the Buccaneers. Now, he didn't say much this past Monday. <laughs> but usually he does. Now, I didn't, I've never said to Pastor Daryl, stop forcing the Buccaneers on me. I know he's passionate about them. He watches them. He wants to talk about them. Um, some of you talk about your kids all the time, especially we got new parents, right? The, the oh, lovey-dovey kids, all this stuff. You never say, stop forcing your kids on me. People talk about the things that they are important to them. Um, nevertheless, we get accused of forcing our religion on others. Um, we get accused of oppressing women because we think men and women are different. Uh, of being narrow-minded, intolerant, big, bigoted. All kinds of things. I don't know what you've been accused of in your lifetime. But we have to be able to have conversations about these things. 
And the good thing is this passage of scripture is helping us to see what makes those conversations possible. What allows us to have a civil conversation and not just uh, people like, I don't want to hear what you have to say. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they will see your good deeds. There's the expression, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And this, this is so helpful in, in these conversations where there's differing opinions and there's accusations. If they know that you care, they're more likely to listen to what you have to say. And so when we conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, it puts us in a position, a better position to be listened to when we communicate truth. So we need to live in such a way that these accusations, there's, there's no basis for them. Um, you know, we, one of the reasons we have the Hope Center across the street, we're not, we're not intolerant, we're not narrow-minded. We, anybody who comes, we will offer food, we'll offer clothing, we've got the Christmas cottage ready to go. We're not limiting people who come to those who are like-minded with us. We, we want to help anyone that has a need. And when we do things like that, it, sets, it puts us in a position to tell them what is motivating us to do that. Live in such a way that there's, they can have no claim against you. But even more than that, the end says, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That the, the, the goodness, not the goodness that's in us, but the good things that we do because of Christ in us would draw somebody to say, hey, I want to know more about that. Tell me more about your church. Tell me more about what you believe. Tell me why you think that way. And our... Our conduct among the Gentiles or among unbelievers or in the community, the good deeds that we do help to set the stage for everything else. Um, He continues here in in verse 13. He, He switches from just kind of our conduct in general in the community to specifically, um, how do we deal with authority? Maybe a couple of basic things about authority, and I think these are verses we've touched on as we've been working through 1 Peter But uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Or we have this basis that if any, any authority, every authority, even the evil ones, God has allowed them to be in place. 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2 says we're to pray for the authorities. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions... And thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he adds also for kings and all who are in high positions. Right? Whether we agree with them or not. Now, you say, well, what about, right? Well, everyone's got the what if that we got to throw in there. Um, well, what if their policies or the legislation or the laws contradict the truth of God's word? Well, it's possible that there's time to draw a line in the sand and say, well, I will go this far, but no further. Right? We could stand with Peter who said, we must obey God rather than men when they told Peter he couldn't preach the gospel. Um, but for the most part, let's look at here in verse 13. I think this covers the average situation that we're in. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Obey the law. 
This is our calling as Christians. We should obey the law. We should do what the law says. Um, he says, it's whether it be to the emperor, if it's coming straight down from the president, or to the governors, if this is uh, more of a, a local or if it's a state decision. We should subject ourselves to every human institution, it says. I think what we'll do as we get started into this, I want to look at how Jesus interacted with the governor of his state. When he went to Pontius Pilate the, the day before, or, let me get my, my days right, before he was crucified, um, Pontius Pilate was the governor of, of Judea, and he had this conversation with him. His, his life, so to speak, was in Pilate's hand. Now, Jesus knew where he was going and what his purpose was, but Pilate enters into, uh, in, into play here. He says, so Pilate entered into his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? He's trying to find out what Pilate's talking about. Pilate being Roman, Jesus being a Jew. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate's saying, what, what, are they, what are they claiming against you? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So important here in this verse. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus said, this is what I'm here for, to bear witness for, to the truth. And as Christians, that's our most important thing we can do. We can be involved in politics. We can be involved in social clubs. We can be involved in the community. We can do food. We can do clothing. And we do a lot of these things. But we are here to bear witness to the truth. And as we've been talking about here in this first section, how we live our lives sets the stage for whether or not someone is even going to give us the time of day to listen to what we have to say. Um, just thinking about um, our political situation here, we're talking about being subject to institutions. We're going to be reading here at the bottom about honoring the emperor, uh, living as people who are free. Let me ask you this question. I, this is a question, I didn't come up with this. I found it. I thought it was clever. Hopefully it'll get us all to think. Which statement sounds like Jesus' will for his followers? All right, let's pretend you're back in school. Multiple choice. Which statement sounds like Jesus' will for his followers? A, make America great again. B, build back better. That comes from two different parties, if you didn't know. Or C, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. <laughs> right, it's an easy answer, C, right? And we're just kind of joking, and 
Um, maybe I risk being called unpatriotic because of it or, or whatever. I don't know. You just say, just give me a pass. Okay, I'm from Canada. I probably got a little socialism in me. <laughs> but listen, 24 hours a day, you can listen to whatever news source you want to. You can read whoever's Facebook posts you want to read. You can turn, turn on the radio and listen to the talk stations or whatever pundit you want to follow. But just for a few minutes, I'm, just, I'm going to put all that aside. We're just going to read what God's Word says and how we are to relate to the authorities. And I hope that you, you, you can go there with me this morning. This is something, this is what I wrote. As good citizens... We have a privilege and responsibility to be involved in the political process. As good Christians, we have the privilege and responsibility of being Christ's representatives here on earth. Our identity as Christians, as Christ followers, should supersede any other identity that we have. That's just the bottom line. It's the way that it's got to be. So we're going to talk about it for a few minutes. We see that Jesus had a greater agenda. The Roman Empire was oppressive. The Roman Empire uh, was in Judea. They were, they, the Jews felt, you don't even belong here. And, and Jesus said, that's not, really, that's not really my greatest concern. My greatest concern is that, you, that people would know the truth. And uh, Peter, we looked at last week, Peter says that Jesus came to build the house but it's not a, a house of, of stones that you would pick up or blocks or two-by-fours. It is a house of living stones, of believers coming together uh, so that for a couple of reasons that we uh, would offer our lives as a sacrifice to God, but also that we would uh, proclaim the praises and excellencies of God the Father. This is what Peter has laid out for us. We looked at that last week. So as Christians, we have this dual citizenship, though. We have American citizenship, but we also have our heavenly citizenship. And Peter says here, we are sojourners and exiles. This is a temporary home. And so why is it important as Christians living here in America, living wherever you are, to be subject to every human institution uh, here in verse 13? It tells us we are to be subject for the Lord's sake. This isn't for my well-being. This isn't for your well-being. It's not for the well-being of the government. But for the Lord's sake, we should be subject to every human institution. We should um, obey the law. This is for God's reputation. We say we are Christ followers, so for his reputation, we should be good citizens. Law-abiding law citizens. And you say, well, that's, that's pretty easy. Other than a little speeding, maybe I do pretty good, right? There's more to it than that. Um, he, he says here, he continues in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we live in a, in a free country. And so this idea of being subject to every human institution, I mean, it's pretty easy for us compared to some places. Think about 
even these people that Peter was writing to, who had Nero for their emperor. Think about our brothers and sisters today in China or India or Somalia, uh, Afghanistan, some of these places where it's just very, very difficult to be a Christian. They too are, are to be subject uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. But here in verse 15, he's saying, if this is almost more than just obeying the law. He says, the will of God is that we would do good, and by doing good, we would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, the people that are accusing us of a variety of things. And so um, our good deeds here will silence the critic. And again, we talked about the, what we're doing across the street for Christmas the, the blessings meal. Boy, a critic says, well, those, those Christians, man, they're just, they're, they're just all about themselves. They don't care about anybody. And you could say, well, actually, that's not the way our church is. We're doing a community blessings meal. Would you like to come and help serve? You, could, you can kind of see, we're, we, need, we still need a few more, Cal. Still looking for more. It's hard, um, it's hard for your neighbors to look at you and think, man, they're just judgmental and hateful. When you're bringing them a meal, or you're inviting them over for a meal. So this is, this is what we are called to do. We are called to do good. More than just obey the law, toe the line, but we are to do good. We're to be generous, we're to be loving, we're to be kind. But we're also to live as people who are free. And uh, we have to make sure that we differentiate between biblical freedom and freedom as Americans. Um, two different things. Biblical freedom is talking about freedom from the bondage of sin. Jesus died on the cross. We have been set free, we say. We're talking about our future in heaven, but we're also talking about the Spirit of God that comes in us then is contrary to our flesh to help us fight that battle against sin. So we are free um, from the bondage of sin. Now, as Christians, our freedom does not result in personal rights. Freedom as Christians results in personal service to the Lord. And so there is a difference there. As an American, our freedom gives us rights, right? Freedom of speech, the freedom to gather, the freedom of religious liberty. We have the right to bear arms, the right to privacy, um, the right to assemble. We have rights, we have freedoms as America as Americans, and that means as an individual, I can demand that I have my rights to protect against government overreach, um, to prevent against abusive power. As a Christian, when we talk about our freedom as a Christian, it's not about me as an individual. It's about I am free to serve my Savior. And Galatians talks about this as well. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. We're all called to freedom as believers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay, freedom isn't so that we can do whatever we want to do. But through love, serve one another. You are free. Serve each other. Because you love. Because you've been loved. The next verse says... For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As Christians, we should be marked by love. Because of the freedom we have from sin, then 
Um, we know that's because God loved us, and then we should be loving one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12 says. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, Luke chapter 6 says. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John chapter 15 says. So we have like a double blessing. We have the, the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans, but we also have this freedom in Christ, and they are two different things. Our freedom in Christ means I will give up my personal rights and demands so that I can serve others, that I can serve Jesus. Whatever you say, Lord, I'll do should be our attitude. Whatever is most important to you, God, will be most important to me. So Peter has been um, laying this out for us. He says in verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are free. What does that mean? We can serve God. We can love each other. We can love our community. Verse 17 says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor everyone, every single human being deserves to be honored. Not because of what they've done or what they've accomplished. Sometimes we think somebody doesn't deserve honor because of what they've done and what they've accomplished. But just the fact that each one of us was created in the image of God, means that we should honor every single person. He says, love the brotherhood. We talked last week about it's the special love that Christians should have for one another. Why should we do that? That seems selfish. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As we love each other well, this, that's some of the good deeds we are to do so that people will see that and they'll be silenced and they'll glorify God. Fear God, it says. We need to have an awe and reverence for God. He's both the righteous and holy judge, but he's also our merciful savior. And because of those things, we should have awe and reverence for him. We should fear God. And then it concludes, honor the emperor. We don't have an emperor. Our closest equivalent would be to say, honor the president. Whoever that's going to be, whether you agree or disagree, in, in January, he should be honored. President Trump's still our president now. He should be honored. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we, what, what's, what are we accomplishing in all of this? Well, Let's do a little recap. Some of the things that Peter has called us to do here so far through verse 17 um, in, in chapter 2. Going back to chapter 1, he's called us to be holy. He's called us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's challenged us to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Moving into chapter 2, proclaim the excellencies of God our Father. Keep your conduct honorable. Do good deeds. Be subject to the authorities. Live as servants of God. 
what are we doing all this for? Verse 12 says this, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The way that we live our lives, the way that we treat other people, puts us in a position either to be heard and to have, have, have what we say considered or puts us in a position to be just thrown to the side. They're not worth my time. Why would I listen to them when they act like that? They say one thing and they act a different way. So as, as, as the body, and I'm looking out here and I see some, some people who love one another, who's proclaiming his excellencies, who's honoring God, who are doing good deeds. But let's, let's do those things remembering that there's a purpose for that. We are his representatives. And it says, by our good deeds, it says the challenge is so, so that they would see our good deeds and glorify God. That's our goal, is that people would come to know him. And how we live our lives affect whether what we say is even considered by those who would disagree with what we believe. And so it's so important as we go and do that. So that's our challenge for today, is to live in such a way that they would see our good deeds and glorify God. We're going to close with a, with a prayer. And um, somebody came to me and said they were with prayer partners. Alan and Angie um, are going to be willing and available to pray. If you want to pray with them over any, any need, we'd welcome you to do that. And um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this challenge from your word uh, today, Lord. Um, so, many, so many opinions right now over uh, politics. And your word here this morning lays out pretty, pretty clearly that we should... Um, we should be subject to the authority that's over us, that, you're, that, that you allow authority to be in place, that we should uh, honor our president, that we um, should be good civil servants, that we should um, do good, Lord, so that others would see how we live our lives, how we respond to situations, and that they would come to know you. Lord, I pray that that would be uh, on our hearts and minds, that we would our, our ears would be listening because we, we recognize that the, the passions of our flesh truly are against the Spirit of God. So, Lord, would you give us ears to listen to the Spirit of God that dwells within us so that we could live a life that puts us in a position to be heard by those who would disagree with us. Lord, would you be working in and through us uh, so that your kingdom would... Uh, continue to grow here in Union County and around the world. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for uh, even just giving us the opportunity to represent you. Lord, may we be found faithful. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.